Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Psychological group therapy for women with breast cancer may help them not only to cope better with their disease, but also live longer, U.S. researchers said on Monday. The idea that such therapy can extend survival in cancer patients has been controversial for two decades, and past studies have yielded conflicting results. The new study, which involved 227 women with breast cancer, was led by Ohio State's Barbara Anderson. Half of the study participants took part in a year of therapy in groups of 8 to 12 patients led by two clinical psychologists. The remaining women did not. After 11 years, the women who participated in the group therapy were 56% less likely to die of breast cancer and 45% less likely to have their cancer return, the researchers wrote in the journal. Researchers said that group sessions, among other things, aimed to reduce the women's distress, train them how to relax and improve coping skills, improve their diet and exercise habits, and discourage smoking and drinking alcohol. The improved survival may stem from better immune function resulting from stress reduction, the researchers said. This is an important study, says Dr. Mitch Gallant, Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community. Similar to the Wellness Community, the groups were all facilitated by professionals. In addition, the intervention itself mirrors the key elements of a Wellness Community patient active support group. The therapy sessions began after the women had breast cancer surgery, but before they started chemotherapy and radiation treatments. They took part in weekly sessions for four months and monthly sessions for another eight months. Among the 54 women who died during the study period, those who took part in group therapy lived longer than the others, and among the women whose cancer came back, the recurrence happened later in those who had done the therapy sessions. In other news, older men and younger women fare worse with stomach or gastric cancer than patients in other gender and age groups, research shows. Scientists hypothesize that the difference in disease outcome is related to sex hormones and suggest that further studies should be performed to confirm this. The findings, reported in the Archives of Surgery this month, are based on a study of nearly 1,300 patients with gastric cancer. The subjects included 175, or 13.5%, aged 40 years of age or younger, and 1,124, or 86.5%, older than 40 years of age. Tumor characteristics differed significantly between the two age groups, and yet in the overall analysis, the prognosis of younger and older patients was comparable. The difference in survival did not emerge until the researchers divided the subjects by both age and gender. Younger men had the best 10-year survival at 62.5%, while older men had the worst at 44.6%. 
Older and younger women had intermediate survival rates at 56.2% and 51.9%, respectively. The findings suggest strongly that both age and gender must be taken into account when predicting survival from gastric cancer, the investigators conclude. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. When someone is faced with a life-threatening event or illness, hundreds of emotions can race through that person's mind, everything from fear uh, to confusion and sometimes even intense anxiety. But for some individuals, their first reaction to a challenging situation isn't panic, but rather strength and determination in order to face everything head-on. On today's show, we're going to discuss how you, too, can be courageous in the face of adversity, specifically if you or a loved one has been diagnosed with cancer. We are joined by a very special guest, Colonel Jack Jacobs, who is no stranger to bravery and valor in a time of intense hardship. Colonel Jacobs is a Vietnam War Congressional Medal of Honor recipient and is a director of the Medal of Honor Foundation. He is also a military analyst for NBC and MSNBC and recently came out with a new book, which was published in October of last year. The book is called If Not Now, When? Duty and Sacrifice in America's Time of Need. It is a compelling personal reflection of the events and individuals who have shaped him, specifically highlighting his time in service. Uh, The book depicts Colonel Jacobs' selflessness, sacrifice, and the spirit of triumph. Many of the same courageous characteristics individuals affected by cancer display every day. We are so honored to have you here with us today, Colonel Jacobs. It's my pleasure to be with you. We're also joined by Dr. Mitch Golant, a Ph.D. psychologist and Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community. Welcome, Mitch. Yes, glad to be here with you all. So thank you guys for being here to discuss these topics. Um, We're going to jump right in. Colonel Jacobs, I'd like to to start with you. Take us back, Colonel Jacobs. Tell us what happened the morning of March 9, 1968. Uh, I was an advisor to a Vietnamese infantry battalion and had been in Vietnam for about six months, mm-hmm. and we've been fighting uh, through the Tet Offensive in 1968, 1967, 68, and uh, we're in contact with the enemy every single day. Uh, it was more or less continuous combat. Uh, we would occasionally lose contact with the enemy as they retreated, went someplace else, or we went back to our base to lick our wounds. We received information that the enemy was located in a specific place. Time, my battalion was attached to the province, and the province chief had command over our battalion. And the intelligence was that the enemy was in a specific place in a district not far away from where our base camp was located. And so the province mounted an enormous operation uh, that included two battalions, which for our area was, was plenty big. My battalion to assault at dawn from the Mekong River and moved inland to the north, and a ranger battalion uh, to be inserted by helicopter to the east and then move west. We were both going to converge on this one spot where the enemy was supposed to be located. Unbeknownst to us, the enemy had a spy in the province chief's headquarters, and they knew when we were coming and where we were coming and in what strength and so on. And to complicate matters, the scout platoon of the battalion, which was supposed to screen to our front and to the flanks, was somewhere else. <laughs> no idea where they were, but they're supposed to contact the enemy first so that the main body, which included me and my NCO and the rest of the Vietnamese soldiers and the two lead companies, would then be able to maneuver against the enemy. Uh, the scout platoon wasn't there. They were where they weren't supposed to be, and it turned out that we were at the very front, and the enemy waited until we got to be about 50 meters away 
from their location. They had spent three days digging in. They had 300 uh, Viet Cong in an L-shaped ambush and caught us all out in the open. And in the first 10 seconds or so, we had uh, about 75 soldiers killed and wounded and and, and all caught in the open. Very unpleasant uh, set of circumstances. I'd been ambushed before, Mm -hmm. but obviously never from that kind of strength and those from enemy in those kinds of positions. So what were you, tell us what you were feeling at that time. I mean, do, do, do you remember back to those emotions? Well, I was, I was wound, like everybody else, was wounded in the initial uh, volley of mortar rounds and machine gun and yeah. rifle fire. And maybe this is a, a, a condensing what people feel like when they're, when they're given very bad medical news. Your initial response is that it's not actually happening, mm. that it's, this is wrong, everybody, this, whatever is bad is going to happen to somebody else. I know it sounds difficult to have gone through six months of intense combat where people on your right and left have been killed and wounded all the time and, not, and, 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 and have this disbelief when you're, you yourself are injured. But that, that's exactly what happens. I think a lot of people, especially young people, and this was... Forty-two years ago, you, you know, uh, Colonel Jake is uh, listening to you to describe that moment. You know, often uh, people with cancer, when they're diagnosed in that situation, it's as if they're they've just entered into this incredible ambush. Everything stops for them. They have this experience of, well, the first thought is like that. You know, hearing the word cancer, it's like a death sentence, and it's uh, an incredible moment to pull yourself together and to go on. And you really need the, the help of those around you, your team, if you will, to get through this. Well, it's, uh, it's very well said. I think if you ask any soldier, sailor, airman, or marine who's been on the combat zone, who's been in a very difficult circumstance, uh, he'll tell you that, sure, he's fighting to defend the republic and to accomplish the mission, but most of all, troops fight for each other. Yeah. And that's really what what brings units successfully out of difficult circumstances, and I think it's what motivates people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. I think it's circumstances that make the man. Yeah, yeah. You know, the heart and soul of the wellness community is the sense of esprit de corps, Colonel, that joining together with others in this battle, fight against cancer, and that joining together is, uh, for, for many folks, exactly what you're describing, that it's, you're with others going through what you're going through. In fact, that's what people with cancer say about joining a, a community, you know, uh, the wellness community in particular. They want to be with others who are going through what they're going through because they understand. And it yeah, I think there's a natural gravitation when you're together mm. to, to get closer together. Yeah. Uh, it was, I guess it was Thomas Paine at the beginning of this republic said, well, was it Paine or Franklin? I can't remember. My memory's not what it used to be. Uh, it said, we'll either hang together or we'll hang separately. I think it was probably Franklin. It sounds like something he would say. And in, 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 in combat, that's the way you feel. I, I, have, a, I have a sister who uh, lost a breast to cancer nine years ago, yeah. uh, who's very active in, uh, in support groups and so on. She found it very useful herself when she was ill, and she, uh, she gets a great deal of satisfaction knowing that she's helping other people come to the same conclusion that if they hang together, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Colonel, hearing you describe? Would that be okay? Sure. I, I know kids can ask questions, but, but, but that, that moment that you're describing, um, what is it that's enduring when you look back 
you know, well, I, I, it's a leading question because so many people with cancer say, you know, cancer, there's a tremendous silver lining. It was a turning point in my life. I learned something about me. Do you, you think of it that way? Or there well, ways? that's an interesting question. I'm freak, I, I, I teach up at West Point uh, uh, one day a week, and I, I, I talk to young people all the time, yeah. uh, both in college uh, and, and at military institutions, and I talk to young troops. I go over and visit them in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Kuwait, and so on. And I'm frequently asked a, a question that revolves around that very aspect aspect of service do do you think that i'll have what it takes uh if if things get difficult and i have to act i'm very much concerned that i won't i won't do the right thing and my response is always the same having been in plenty of combat and seen people uh seen people act uh, under duress uh, the answer is yeah i mean 99 times out of 100 you're going to do exactly what you need to do for a wide variety of reasons, you're going to have the courage because you've been trained to have the courage, but courage, but principally because you're around people who care about you and whom you care about. And I, and I, I think that makes all the difference. Yeah. Boy, it's so well said, you know, uh, it's, and it's heartening when you think about it for those folks who are under such, you know, under duress profoundly, but for folks with cancer in particular, Having that to be able to be with each other is is so important in terms of enduring. Yeah, attitudes. Uh, we shouldn't discount attitude as a as a healing mechanism, as a as a mechanism to motivate us to act, to do the right thing, and and to think clearly about it. I, I think thinking clearly is a tough thing to do when you're emotionally involved w- with something like cancer, with and in combat, but. Thinking clearly is exactly what you have well, to do. You know, in 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 our work, uh, Colonel, the 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 function of getting closer to being able to think it through, problem solve, often starts with emotional expression, being with others who are sharing what you're going through, being able to talk with each other about some of the fears and anxieties. But very quickly, it moves into practical concerns and problem solving. And that's where the teamwork of both the family and those going through it are perfect, particularly important. Yeah, it's very, I think it's very tough to do to to get through any difficult circumstance all by yourself. Like I said, I've been through a lot of combat, and I've never been in a circumstance in which uh, anybody did anything by himself. It's it's always with other people because you. That's what's that's what is uh, being in a unit is all about. You have to fight for each other. All right, guys, I'm jumping back in here because you've completely co-opted oh, are you there? my, uh, my interview. <laughs> I feel like I don't even need to be here. Come on, guys, let me into the conversation. <laughs> actually, we're actually coming up on a break. Uh, today, I'm frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about courage in the uh, face of adversity and really some models about how to find your inner strength uh, in the face of cancer. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face. It could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we've been talking about how people affected by cancer can learn to take back control and face their challenges with strength and determination. Today we've been talking with Colonel Jack Jacobs, Medal of Honor recipient and a true American hero. We're also joined by Dr. Mitch Gallant, Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community. Uh, Colonel Jacobs, you mentioned in our uh, first part of our conversation that you have uh, a sister who's a breast cancer survivor. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about her and what her experience was like and, and what you kind of observed through that experience as a family? Well, uh, clearly she was shocked when she uh, heard the uh, heard the diagnosis. She'd gone every uh, every year for a mammogram uh, like she was supposed to, and she was extremely lucky in that the kind of cancer that she had was detected very early in its uh, in its gestation. I, I think if 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 it had been detected the following years, uh, the outcome would have been very much different. But she was she was shocked. Obviously, at the very beginning, this is not happening in, happening to me. It's supposed to happen to somebody else. And then the realization came that in fact it is happening to her. 
and she's going to have to make some serious decisions. And it was because she was hooked up with a support. She got hooked up with a support group very, very quickly, and she had a very supportive oncologist uh, that she was able to make rational choices about what to do and how to act. Uh, did them with uh, studied with great diligence, made her decisions, and it's now nine years later, and she's she's in great shape and and helps others now. Uh, in the same circumstance, she's very. The more, the the longer she's involved in uh, talking to other people who are in her same circumstance, the the more enthusiastic she is about her own situation. It's a it's a very um, it's a very mutually reinforcing exercise. Wow, that's fantastic, and we're we're good to hear the <laughs> happy to hear the good news uh, about her, um, Colonel. I want to talk a little bit about your book. The title of your book is If Not Now. When tell us why you chose that title, what that means, and tell us a little bit about the book and really why you decided to write it. Uh, somebody years ago asked me what was I thinking at the time of the action, and I, I said, "Well, I'm not thinking. I wasn't thinking anything. I was just scared to death, and I didn't know what to do. And I figured I had to do something." But then when I thought about it a little bit, it it, it occurred to me that in fact the thought process was the same as the thought process of a a first century. Uh, Talmudic scholar who was asked by uh, somebody for advice. Uh, the, the story, as the story goes, is probably apocryphal, but it's demonstrative nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a wealthy guy from some small village came to him, came to Hillel, and said, Listen, um, I've got this problem. I'm the only guy in town with money, and every time they need money for something, they come to me, and I'm pretty well sick of it. I mean, I'm just, I keep giving and giving and giving, and I'm tired of giving. But I know I should, but I'm tired of doing that. Can you give me some advice? And Hillel said, basically, um, if not you, who? And if not now, when? Mm-hmm. It, doesn't tra- it that doesn't translate directly from the Hebrew into that, but that's what it means. If you're not going to do it, who's going to do it? And if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? And that same, I think that same thought process went through my my little brain at the time of the action. Everybody was uh, killed or wounded. Uh, they were out in the open. The enemy was shooting the place up. And they were actually, some of them were coming out of their bunkers to to shoot the wounded and take their weapons and so on. And I I was I decided that I better do something because if I don't do something, nobody else was in a position to do anything. Yeah, yeah. But I, I got to tell you this: I was I was scared. I was scared witless. And anybody who says he wasn't scared in combat is either lying or a psycho. I can tell you, <laughs> I was always scared, and everybody I ever talked to who was in combat was scared as well. And I think that, the, and not to go on about this, but I, I think this does have applicability to. Uh, to any kind of situation in which people find themselves and it's extremely difficult uh, with, with a bad diagnosis or anything yeah. else, it's okay to be scared. I mean, it's... But, well, well you know, Colonel, if I can jump in, is that, is that okay? for what No, please do. I don't want to... Just when you were articulating about the, you know, the healthy function of expressing fear, the idea that that is normal and that it doesn't have to stop you to make good decisions in the moment... And, and often for patients, you know, patients with cancer and their families, they often talk about carpe diem, seize the moment, that this is this chance that they have to make some choices or changes in their life that perhaps uh, wouldn't be as immediate or imminent 
with cancer. And it, it does bring up this notion that, that life is, is fragile and potentially foreshortened with such a diagnosis. And yeah, the other thing that comes to mind is a, is, a, is a related notion, and that is the notion of crisis. We use the term crisis all the time, mm-hmm. and because we use it all the time, if everything's a crisis, then nothing's a crisis. You know, we, we have a homework crisis or a culinary crisis because the roast is burned and so on. I mean, those things aren't crises. It's important to be able to distinguish between situations that are crises and require you to do something mm-hmm. and situations that you don't have to worry about. And I think being in difficult circumstances, situations that require you to make a choice, require you to, you, you've got, I know choosing to do nothing I guess is an option, but in circumstances that require you really to act, um, doing nothing is probably not a good option. Uh, it's that way in combat. It, it, it's that way when confronted with a very bad illness. Yeah, you'd be interested probably to know, Colonel, that the wellness community is founded on, on, on a, uh, a seminal idea called the patient active concept. And, and it briefly says that if you participate along with your health care team and your Fight for recovery. You'll not only improve the quality of your life, but may enhance the possibility of your recovery. And so, there's the notion of the activated patient, someone who is making choices, attitudes, behaviors, and actions that will directly improve the quality of their lives. Oh, I agree, I agree strongly that in difficult circumstances, you've got to you've got to make informed decisions about what you're going to do, uh, and that. But doing nothing is probably not a particularly good idea. Yeah. What it, about the fight or flight response, I, Mitch? Do you want to talk yeah, about that a well, little bit? I was gonna, I was gonna just move into two parts of that, yeah. Kim, because you, you notice, Colonel, I did say fight for recovery, and that fits really, you know, in in the language of of you know the battlefield. That's uh, that's you know literally true. The you know uh, in in the idea of illness, it's kind of a. a a surprising way sometimes to think about this. And I don't know if you have some reaction to that as we answer Kim's question about a normal response to to a crisis is this fight or flight or frozen experience when we're under duress or trauma. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think the analogy is a perfect one. Um mm-hmm. there in, in combat as in uh, as in medical emergencies you've there are a lot of tools at your disposal, and uh, the thing about being on the battlefield is that you have to make a very quick decision. And by the way, the, the tools at your disposal are limited in number, mm. and most of them are probably not going to work, but you can't do nothing. In a, in a medical situation, um, you've got a lot of tools at your disposal, and not only that, you've got, you've got advice from mm. from friends and family, and from medical professionals as well. You can actually make an informed decision uh, that really enhance your chances of, uh, of, of, uh, of prevailing. But it's just like combat in that regard. Um, the, the time period during which you have to make a decision is a heck of a lot shorter on the battlefield. But I think the, the, the intellectual process, uh, the way you have to seize the opportunity to... to, to uh, to affect the outcome in your favor, I think that's all exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting because we've been working, particularly at the wellness community, with some other organizations, looking at this period of time, Colonel, right at the point of diagnosis, and just 
prior to your beginning treatment. And why that's particularly important for people with cancer today is because cancer is becoming more and more thought of as a chronic illness. And there's many options, as you rightly point out, in front of patients and families in terms of treatment. But paradoxically, sometimes you choose X treatment or one treatment, but that may limit your ability to use another treatment another moment. And so there's this moment in time between that diagnosis and when treatment begins where there's a lot of anxiety. And that notion of both fight and flight and frozen that, that uh, Kim was talking about really gets activated because you don't want to make the wrong decision. And yeah, I think it's... I think it's that way in in everything in life. You, you're disinclined to decide because you're worried that you, you're making the wrong decision. Yeah. And but that's you know that's life. Sometimes you, you've got to you got to choose, and you may choose wrong, but it's better than not choosing at all, especially when when you're in an acute situation. And you have to decide. But I think the thought processes are the same. Colonel Jacobs, we have a, a couple of minutes until uh, until the break, but I just I, I want to talk a little bit more about your book. Uh, again, uh, for folks listening, the title of Colonel Jacobs' book is If Not Now, When. Um, tell us a little bit more about the book. What inspired you to, to, to sit down and put pen to paper, and, and are there uh, certain messages or, or, or lessons that folks will get when they, when they, uh, when they dig into the book? I've been yelled at by a lot of people for many, many years to write a book, and I said, no, I don't want to do it because I don't want to write a book that where in which every sentence starts with I, which is what you do when you're writing a memoir. But eventually I, I was encouraged so strongly to do it that I went ahead and did it. And uh, But I insisted with the publisher that it wasn't going to be one of these all my head hurts and all my friends are dead books. I mean, there's going to be plenty of that in any case because a lot of it was about being in the Army in combat. But I... It had to be. Uh, it had to be at least marginally amusing, and funny. And I've got a digressive mind in any case, and so there, there's there's actually quite a bit of humor in it. Uh, at least partially a function of the fact that I find some amusement in almost everything, <laughs> which is one of the reasons. I, I think that's another thing that you, that really helps to live uh, live beyond difficult circumstances is to is to have at least a uh, have a, a, at least a little sense of humor. And then as I started writing about various things that had happened to me and that I had done, invariably some small lesson would pop up and I'd stick it in there. So there's, uh, while it, I didn't go about it on purpose to say do A but not B, uh, um, you know, from time to time that's what popped up. Oh. It, was, it was a great day. I, I you got to laugh. If you can't laugh, then I don't know what you got. But, but a lot of the book is at least mildly oh. amusing. Colonel, hey, be great hey, to Mitch, hear some we of those have, life we lessons have about, the, uh, about just a minute till the break, but importance of humor in dealing with cancer. Yeah. How no, I, I mean, the, the, yeah, the doctor can tell you. You got to. I think you have to have. You got to be broad-minded about things that hit your broadside, and probably cancer is one of those one of those circumstances in which humor, even a little bit of humor, is not going to hurt you very much. Mitch, do you see folks using humor uh, to uh, manage cancer? Yeah, there's sometimes it's gallows humor that's <laughs> being used, but but the ability to to you know laugh in face of adversity is hugely emotionally regulating and calming, actually. 
And when people have a chance to laugh, then they can approach a problem from a different perspective. It provides a distance. And, you know, at, at most wellness communities, Colonel, we have what's called uh, you know, joke fest or, or opportunities for, for, in a social way for our participants to get together and tell stories or tell jokes that are particularly funny. So, Mitch, let's pick up on that. We're going to go to break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're joined by Colonel Jack Jacobs, who is a Vietnam War Congressional Medal of Honor recipient and a military analyst for NBC and MSNBC. He is also the co-author of the book, If Not Now, When? Duty and Sacrifice in America's Time of Need, which he wrote with Douglas Sentry. We're uh, also joined by Dr. Mitch Golant. Mitch is the Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community. And together we've been discussing courage in the face of adversity and how people affected by cancer do not have to feel helpless and, and, and hopeless. Um, Colonel Jacobs, we hear a lot 
uh, about many of the men and women returning from Iraq and Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, uh, of course, an anxiety uh, disorder that that people can develop after exposure to a traumatic event or an ordeal. You obviously, in in sharing your story today, went through quite a bit when you uh, served in Vietnam. So how did you cope with all of that when you returned to the United States, and was there the importance of kind of connecting with those who had been there with you to, to help you make that adjustment? Well, I was lucky because I stayed in the Army. Uh, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I was constantly in a community that had been through the same experience, and, and as a result, it was very, very easy for me uh, to uh, ameliorate whatever, whatever difficulties I, I otherwise would have had uh, I didn't have any of those problems, but I think this is often the case. Uh, kids have problems when they are uh, when they leave the service. The supportive community isn't there anymore, and they're left more or less on their own. I know the VA is there, and they go to the hospital and so on, and they have their own families. But it's not quite the same as having as being with people all the time who have had exactly the same experience as you. In addition to that, there's there are, there are other kids who have uh, PTSD that uh, that's not that, that may it may be manifested as a as a psychology, but it's got actual physiological uh, roots. Uh, I talked to one uh, Marine who had 29 concussions, um, uh, mm. frequent all all the result of improvised explosive devices. Mm. The skin wasn't punctured or any of that stuff, but they, you know, it rattles your cage. Yeah. And and that can't possibly have a very good effect on your brain. And uh, a lot of these kids uh, come down with symptoms months or even years afterwards. And I'll I'll be willing to bet that 25 or 30 years from now, uh, troops who had no symptoms at all today are going to have some problems later on, and we need to be prepared to take care of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Mitch, just tell us a little bit more about PTSD, and and um, do people who've been diagnosed with cancer exhibit any symptoms that are similar to the symptoms of of post traumatic stress disorder PTSD? Well, sure, Kim. That's a it's a great question and, and a important follow up to to what the colonel uh, was describing. You know, as with the example of the marine experiencing concussions. As you can imagine, patients and or families experiencing chemotherapy, the long-term effects of that kind of chemotherapy can have huge impact uh, physiologically. And the way we think about, uh, you know, trauma, PTSD-type symptoms in, in people with cancer, Kim and, and Colonel, is, is that there's this intrusion and avoidance. Intrusion are you wake up with nightmares, you wake up with... Uh, or you're going uh, driving by the hospital and you get nauseous. And, and what you also experience is avoidance. Folks with cancer will, they hear cancer on the TV, will shut it off. Mm-hmm. Or in some extreme cases, the thought of getting more treatment is really challenging for them and they avoid treatment. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit more, Mitch, about you know, some of those some of those uh, some of those similarities, and are there? Do you think that some of the uh, 
some of the kinds of programs and, you know, interventions for perhaps returning veterans who are experiencing some symptoms of PTSD might be similar to some of the interventions that we see working for people with cancer? That's yeah, a, a great question, Kim. You know, the whole idea, of course, the wellness community is to be with others who are going through what you're going through because of the experience for, for many people with cancer is that they feel isolated. I remember, you know, I currently live in Los Angeles. In 1994, there was a huge earthquake, and I remember doing support groups at that time, and and that the folks in the support group said to, to everyone, to each other, you know, after that earthquake that was so huge, I could see the same fear in people's eyes that I experienced each time. I go to chemotherapy, and I felt less alone. Mm. But the the second point that you're making, which is really, really important, is that if we can find ways for people to connect with each other in as many different ways as possible. You know, Kim, we offer programs at the wellness community, and I know you know this, uh, on the Internet, mm-hmm. where people with, with cancer can get support via the Internet. In fact, in one of the projects uh, related to that, we've been you know, training psychologists from the VA colonel, uh, San Francisco VA, in providing online support groups for um, post-deployment Iraqi veterans who are experiencing PTSD or, or mental illness so they can be with each other even though they're dispersed all over the country. Yeah, I think being part of a community, it really does make all the difference. And I, I, I'm, I don't know what situation I would have been in had I not remained in the Army and had been with, People who, who, uh, who had gone through the same uh, difficult circumstances, uh, probably not as well as I did. So b- being together is really important. Yeah, yeah, the social support part of of our lives is incredibly sustaining. Colonel, I've I've, I've uh, heard folks talk about the fact that maybe maybe uh, PTSD is under recognized uh, for those returning from war and perhaps under treated, and there maybe are some stigmas attached with talking about some of these um, emotional and stress uh, uh, symptoms that, that uh, returning veterans are, uh, uh, are facing and that perhaps, you know, because of that stigma, they're not going to get the support and care uh, that they need. Do you, do you have any comments on that? Well, I think that was the case uh, early on before it was recognized as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the perception that people were just malingering because they were complaining about... Uh, about, about being in the service, they, they didn't want to be redeployed and so on, and there's always going to be a certain measure of that. Right. But, but, but it's clearly recognized now, and communities are being set up across the board in, uh, in every uh, military base uh, around the world uh, that, to deal with it. Um, the, the new uh, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Rick Shinseki, whom I know very, very well, we go back a long, long time, uh, himself badly wounded, uh, has a very good understanding of what it takes and has committed himself to taking care of it. So the, you're absolutely right. There, there was a problem early on, but, uh, but the people in the military establishment recognize it as a genuine problem. It's yeah. something that needs to get taken care of. And that they do have the capability of doing that, um, and maybe in a lot better ways than they did during Vietnam. In Vietnam, we had individual replacements. So you got drafted or you enlisted, mm-hmm. and you went to a unit, you went to Vietnam, you fought there. If you survived, you got sent home, and then you were out. Mm-hmm. And now you were without your buddies, and you're on your own, and so on. It's not surprising a lot of people had problems then yeah. and still have problems. 
Now it's very much different. The unit goes overseas as a group and comes home as a group. Mm. And your family, instead of being thrown out of their quarters, which is what happened in Vietnam 40-some-odd years ago, now stay on the post and in quarters, and they're there when you come home. Mm. It's, it's, uh, the, the military establishment and the VA now have the tools to get it done, and, uh, and I, I'll be surprised that there, aren't, uh, there isn't progress and great inroads made uh, to take care of people who do have the problem. Hey, Mitch, are, you, um, are, are we still seeing in society today uh, some stigma around cancer? Are we seeing perhaps folks who don't want to talk about uh, cancer in uh, the workplace because they're afraid they might not get advanced or that they might be treated differently? Sure. Are we still, we've got just a couple minutes until our break, but are, are we seeing any, any, any no, stigma sure. uh, with cancer today in our society? Oh, we sure are, Kim. You know, uh, as I mentioned, I live in Los Angeles, which is the industry here is Hollywood, and if you're you know, an actor uh, diagnosed with cancer, then that's best to kept, be kept a secret. That's common knowledge that for fear of not being able to get work. But there's the other stigma. Y- you know, uh, folks diagnosed with lung cancer, for example, th- there is often some shame or embarrassment around being uh, having an illness that was, quote-unquote, brought on by yourself. And, y- you know, Various cancers, prostate cancer, breast cancer, because it's linked to to intimacy or sexuality, often has a stigma associated with it. So those are real concerns: stigma that you're damaged goods, and who would want to be with you, uh, and 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 the visual or physical scars that result from from such, from surgery or changes in body because of chemotherapy adds to the stigma. And don't, don't, oh, really quickly, don't most people with devastating illnesses? Not most, but maybe quite a few. Uh, don't they, uh, many of them, uh, have a feeling of guilt that somehow they did something wrong, oh. whether it's cigarettes or not, maybe something else? Well, well said, Colonel. That, that, and it's important, in, in, at least from the point of view of the wellness community, one way of reducing that stigma is talking about it. Yeah, and really getting it out, uh, you know, into in, in in group, talking to counselors, talking to others who've been through the same experience, and, and uh uh, finding a way to connect with others and to really uh, to really express that. Uh, I'm Kim Tebow, though. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about courage in the face of adversity. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or 
or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've been talking about how people affected by cancer can learn to take back control of their lives and face challenges with courage and and with determination. We're honored to be joined today by Colonel Jack Jacobs, Medal of Honor recipient, and also uh, my colleague, Dr. Mitch Goland, Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community. Mitch is a Ph.D. psychologist. Um, Mitch, what are some other ways that people can cope with cancer, and why is it so important to make sure that someone's emotional needs, whether it's a patient or, or, or a caregiver, are you know why these needs uh, get addressed. I mean, is this is, is this part of is this part of cancer care today? I think it's uh, you know there was uh, Kim. There's a report in, in Colonel Jacobs. There's a report that came out from the Institute of Medicine in, in uh, November 2007 that talked about cancer. The treatment, the standard of treatment for people with cancer, is not just about biology. It is also about their emotional and psychological and social well-being. That it's an integral part of care. That you cannot be treating the body without treating the mind as well. And that there's a profound impact that all of that has. And that there are activities, actions, that you as a patient and a caregiver can take that will improve your quality of life and may enhance the possibility of recovery. And one key component of that is information and education problem-solving, support by being with others, and having a community where you can learn with each other going forward. I, I, I think that's true in uh, all difficult situations. I think one of the things that happens to you when times are difficult is that your mind gets clouded. It's very difficult for you to sort out uh, fact and fiction. Um, uh, it's difficult to find a path out. And if you have assistance, all that stuff becomes much clearer. Um, and and once, once you're in possession of facts, um, no matter how difficult the circumstance is, I think it has a very uh, a real calming effect. I remember when I was on the battlefield, and, uh, just as a background, it's extremely difficult to operate in the middle of combat. You don't know where the good guys are, the bad guys are, and you're scared. It's a very bad combination, and that... That often drives you to, to to freeze and not act. But I was very lucky in that it was clear to me exactly where the bad guys were and where the good guys were, and it's amazing. So I I was in possession of facts not normally associated with the with the uh, the chaos of of uh, of combat, and it had a it had a very calming effect on me. I 
I, the path was clear. I knew where they were, where we were, and what had to be done, and that, that made it much, much easier. I, I had been in other combat circumstances in which it wasn't as clear or wasn't clear at all, and, uh, and it was much more difficult. Like, I, I had a hard time acting, and in many cases couldn't because I couldn't figure out uh, what to do. Yes. But being in possession of information makes, makes things much, much easier. You know, Colonel, in the cancer arena, and part of this report was the recommendation that, that all patients with, be screened for psychological or psychosocial distress. And, and from our perspective, it provides a roadmap for patients to know what their needs are so that they can make informed choices, informed decisions about their care. And, and that's new. Yeah. And as essential as that may seem to all of us, you know, we screen for mammography, but we have never to this date screened 100% for psychosocial distress. And, and if we do that, then we, we believe that care will be better because patients will know what's along with their healthcare team and partnership with their healthcare team, know what to do as they navigate through this un- uncharted waters. You know, um, Colonel Jacobs, I'm sure you often give advice to young men and women who are going to, into service, going into combat. Um, I'd be curious to see what you tell them and uh, whether we can draw any, you know, parallels or words of wisdom where that, where that same advice might apply to someone who's been diagnosed with cancer. Well, I, we mentioned before earlier the notion that you're all together in a group and you're all responsible for not only completing the mission but also for taking care of each other. It's almost as if, however, you don't have to tell people that because they will naturally gravitate to taking care of each other. Even though they may have nothing in common uh, in, in outside the military or outside combat, would not necessarily have anything to do with one another. But it's the circumstance that drives them together. The second thing that's very important is having confidence in in their training and ability to do uh, their jobs. Uh, I can't emphasize enough how important that is, uh, not just training, but training, is, uh, convincing the kids that they really do know what they're doing. It's easy to, it's easy to, to, to be your own worst uh, critic in difficult circumstances and say, I, I don't know what to do, but they really do know what to do. Yeah. And it's important. We spend a lot of time telling kids, that they have the best training in the world, and therefore, when it, at the point of decision, they will know what to do. Yeah. And we've got to practice that with them all the time. But, you know, if, you, if you're diagnosed with a terrible illness, if somebody tells you, well, oh, you've got cancer, that's the first time. I mean, you're, 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 you're embarking on a brand-new path. You don't have any experience. In many respects, it's a little bit more difficult. People with cancer have just been told they have cancer than it is for combat soldiers who practiced their craft, mm-hmm. practiced making difficult decisions. That's why it's all the more important to have a community, a support group around you for cancer, yeah. uh, because in, in the military, the support group's there from the very beginning. Yeah. You know, Mitch, these parallels are just uh, so, I, I know. so unbelievable gonna... to me. Um, we we just uh, yeah. we're, we're coming towards the end of the show, Mitch. But I'm I'm reminded of actually a time when I uh, Colonel Jacobs mentioned that that these folks would not be together were it not for circumstance, right? Yeah. And I remember a time when I sat in on a support group in uh, in West Los Angeles, and there was a 28 year old woman with breast cancer mm-hmm. and a 64 year old man with prostate cancer in that same yeah. support group who were supporting each other and giving each other uh, advice and encouragement. And I thought, wait, 
when else would these people come together except for you know in you know in this support group? I mean, I, I, Mitch, I'm sure you, you're yeah. seeing so many parallels here as well. Yeah, yeah. So if we have time, Kim, you know exactly that point of the 64 year old and 28 year old because these folks have lived lives, and when the diagnosis of cancer happens, it's as if they fall off the edge of the earth. And part of the value of support is helping them regain and maintain as much control in their lives as possible because they, they, you know, just because you have cancer doesn't mean you don't know how to deal with things. You've lived your life and survived lots of different events and occasions, and the value of support, particularly professional support in an organization like the wellness community or other support, is an incredible way of helping patients remind themselves that they can get through something together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these parallels, you know, have just really... Uh, I think been unbelievable, uh, you know, for us here today. Just, just quickly, Mitch, um, as we're wrapping up, what advice would you give someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer? Oh, I think we've had some great examples today, Kim. But the first and foremost is, you know, about you know, information is power, and being able to figure out what is the best course of treatment for you. There are so many different actions that yeah. you can take, but being with family and friends, you know finding information, becoming a partner with your doctor, being able to ask questions that are important to you, not being alone, are incredibly essential as you move forward with the cancer. So we've had an amazing discussion today on, uh, frankly speaking, about cancer. Uh, we've, we've been talking about courage in the face of adversity and finding your inner strength and you have cancer. And really some fascinating parallels and analogies. Uh, we have been so honored to have our special guest, Colonel Jack Jacobs, with us today and certainly... Colonel Jacobs is no uh, no stranger to bravery and valor in, in times of, of, of hardship. Uh, Colonel Jacobs won the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor um, and is a director, uh, one of the directors of the Medal of Honor Foundation and a military analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Um, I also want to thank my colleague, um, Mitch Golant. Mitch is a Ph.D. psychologist. He's been with the wellness community for 24 years and has worked with with uh, thousands of cancer patients um, across the country. Uh, so it's, it's just, guys, it's been a great conversation today. If you um, would like to buy a copy of uh, Colonel Jacob's book, uh, check that out. Uh, again, the book is called If Not Now When. Uh, we would encourage you to go to Amazon.com. If you'd like more information about the wellness community, our free programs of support and education for people with cancer and their loved ones, or if you'd like to find a wellness community near you, please visit www.thewellnesscommunity.org or call 888-793-WELL, W-E-L-L. We want to dedicate today's show to all of the men and women who are fighting to uh, maintain our security and, and, and our freedom and to all of our heroic uh, veterans and also dedicate the show to those we have lost uh, in battle and to their, uh, to their families and loved ones. I'd like to thank you all for joining us on today's show. And until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. 